This morning's reading is Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. But as we begin, I'll lead us in a prayer. Thank you, our Father, for the good news of your salvation. Thank you so much that you have not left us in the pit, but you have worked to bring us to know you again. And so, we, Father, we pray as we reflect on those truths this morning, that, Father, by your Spirit, you would encourage our hearts and set our sight, help us to set our sights on the Lord Jesus and him alone, for we ask in his name. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by playing a bit of a game. It's called Spot the Difference. We all played it as children. I wonder if you could spot the difference between these two photos. Now, of course, let's have a good laugh. Let's just get that out of our systems, because one of them I'm a lot older in. Uh, One of them I'm younger. One of them, my fashion is pretty questionable. Um, Well, to be honest, the other one's pretty similar in that regard as well. Uh, But there's one difference there that you may not spot, because it's not so obvious. Uh, And that's because in one of them, I'm a Christian, and in one of them, I'm not. It's hard to tell, isn't it? Because becoming a Christian, it doesn't make an obvious difference externally. There's no kind of change in my face. There's no halo behind my head. There's no special mark I receive. And because of that, you can think that Christians are just like everyone else. See, in one sense, becoming a Christian is very ordinary, isn't it? It feels very ordinary. And because it does, it can create a bit of a problem. Because we can think that there's not much that's happened in that change. Uh, Perhaps you're listening in this morning, or you're here this morning, and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian. And one of the reasons you wouldn't is because you think, what's the big deal? Why is there much of a change? It's not like everyone's lives get suddenly better. Why do I need to change? 
And maybe us as Christians also find that as well. We wonder sometimes how much has really changed. Yes, we've got faith in Jesus, but we still find ourselves in our bodies, bodies that are plagued by strains and sufferings and stresses. Yes, we've got faith in Jesus, but we still find ourselves in this world, and we're still plagued by sins and the temptation to say an unkind word or engage in late-night internet browsing. Or maybe we've just been a Christian a very long time, and over the years we've held on to that simple faith in the gospel, but we wonder sometimes, is that enough? Has much changed? And perhaps some of us even find ourselves from time to time focusing on something more tangible or more powerful, a a more powerful church or more powerful demonstrations of faith. See, the the ordinariness of being a Christian can make it very difficult, can't it? But our passage this morning is all about showing us there is nothing ordinary about becoming a Christian. In fact, there's no greater change in this universe than someone going from non-belief to belief in the Lord Jesus. See, that's uh, Paul's aim in this passage this morning. You'll remember last week that Paul prays for, for knowledge. And it's absolutely remarkable because Paul is speaking to churches here. He's speaking to us. He's speaking to Christians. But he wants them to know. Uh, he wants them to know uh, uh, not just in their head, not just information, as Andrew pointed out. But he says... Um, Verse, uh, where is it? Verse uh, 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. And so Paul here, he's speaking to Christians, and he doesn't want them to have more information. He wants them, their hearts to catch up with what's already true. He wants them to know in their hearts, with every fiber of their being, what's happened to them in the Lord Jesus And one of the things he prays for comes up in verse 19. He says, his incomparably great power for us who believe. See, Paul wants us to know God's power. That it's incomparably great and it is at work in us. And where's that power found? Well, it's in what we see in chapter 2. In how we go from non-belief to belief. How we become a Christian. We see here three things. We see the problem we see the solution, and we see the reason. And I want us to focus on each of those this morning. So you're going back to those two photos there. I'm sorry to make you look at them again. Uh, the problem there doesn't seem that great, does it? I mean, in one of them, I'm not trusting in Jesus. In the other, I am. And people change their minds about all sorts of things all the time. I never used to like olives. Now I like olives. I mean, isn't this just another case like that? But actually, Paul says, in the first picture, the one on the left, I'm dead. See, 2 verse 1, he says for you, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. See, here's the big problem. It's not that I just needed to change my mind. It's not that I just needed to pull myself up. I was dead. I was lifeless. Now, the obvious question we ask ourselves is, how was I dead? I mean, I'm clearly walking and talking there. And, and how, Paul, can you say that people around us are dead, even when they seem so alive? But notice what he says. He says, they were dead in your transgressions and sins. And so Paul's not stupid. He's not pretending that people don't have a pulse, but he's saying that our rejection of God, our turning back on our Creator, means that we're dead even though we're alive. 
And it shows us just how serious our situation was. Uh, We follow, as some people call it, the unholy trinity, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so 1 verse 2, he says, we lived, followed the ways of the world. See, he's speaking there about the world that's at odds with its uh, maker. And like a wave in the sea sweeps you off your feet and carries you to where you didn't want to go, so it is that we're swept along with this world against the flow of its creator. He speaks about the devil in verse 2 as well. He says, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's a strange way to put it, but he's speaking there about the heavenly realms that we heard about two weeks ago. And he says that behind the heavenly realms are all sorts of hostile forces, and behind those hostile forces is a ruler, the devil himself. Now, I realize as I speak about that in the 21st century, people think um, I've lost the plot, but it's not talking here about some sort of red-horned, pitchfork-wielding character. It's talking about a being that is in opposition to God and influences us and this world. But the important thing to see here is that we're not aimlessly swept along by external forces, the world and Satan himself. 2 verse 3 is very chill in this. He says, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. See, when I first read this, I thought the problem's pretty bad when you get swept along with the world and you're following uh, the influence of Satan. But actually, I think 2 verse 3 is the gravest problem. Because it's not that we're just held captive by external forces. We're actually held captive by ourselves. So you know how it is when you see the wet paint, do not touch sign. What do we all do? We touch the paint, don't we? But actually, that is um, saying something about our characters. We all have that tendency to oppose God. So you could run the experiment a million times, but none of us would follow God's ways. All of us would go the opposite. And so Paul's big point here is, yes, we've got a pulse, but spiritually speaking, we're dead. Uh, Someone gave me an illustration of this a couple of years ago, which I found very helpful. He said it's like uh, the flowers you buy from a florist. And I um, sometimes have flowers here. They're up the front. They look absolutely beautiful. And um, you know how it is. You, You get them home, and they even blossom for a while. But you know, because they're cut, then in a week's time, they will be rotten, and you'll need to throw them out. See, the flowers, they look alive, but they're really dead. See, the moment you, buy, you cut the stem of the flowers, well, they're dead already, even though they look alive. And Paul's saying, look, humanity, it looks alive, but it's really dead. Now, of course, this is difficult to hear, isn't it? And it's difficult to hear in the West because we pride ourselves, don't we, on our freedom, of our ability to decide things for ourselves, of having it our way, of climbing every mountain. But the reality is our lives are are limited, aren't they? Physically, we know we all die. No one escapes the grave. But Paul is saying the same spiritually, that we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, I realize this may not be the most uplifting message this morning. I'm sorry if you've come here uh, expecting one. We will get there, but uh, not at the moment. It does sound depressing, doesn't it? But the first step to becoming a Christian is to look the problem square in the face. 
See, I'm absolutely convinced that most people in our culture today don't understand what Christianity is about, and they don't understand because they don't understand this point. I didn't for many years. I remember having a conversation a few years ago uh, as I was driving in London with someone, and he said to me, why do I need to be a Christian? I'm a decent person. I know how to be decent. And of course, if Christianity was all about just trying to be a decent person and trying to improve ourselves, well, then I have to agree with him. What is the problem? But actually, Paul says the problem is far deeper than that. It is that we're dead. And if we're dead, it's a whole different story. But actually, I think this is what our world needs to hear, and particularly needs to hear at this moment uh, with our division and polarization. Because actually, this is good news. Now, stay with me on this, because it actually democratizes the problem. See, notice verse 3. He says, all of us lived among them at one time. Now, I asked myself when I was prepping this, why does he say all of us? I mean, does he need to say that? Well, it's because there's a, a background to this letter, that there's divisions between Jew and Gentile in the background. See, the church had the tendency, like the world, to divide across racial lines. And the problem of racism comes from this idea that we're slightly different, we're slightly better than other people. I mean, you hear it today not just with racism, but we hear people say, don't we, I'm not like the youth down my street who hang about uh, smoking drugs, or I'm more considerate than the mask defiers uh, in the the town centre, or I'm not like my neighbours who play their music very loud or park their cars irresponsibly. But the thing is, we're all in the same boat. There's no looking down our noses at another culture, at another race, or another group, or another time in history. Paul says, actually, you're all in the same boat. You're all dead in your transgressions and sins. But this is also good news, because God has done something about it. And that's what we see in the solution here. See, of course, we face a very grave problem, quite literally, But Paul says, God has revealed to us the solution. Look at verse 5. He says, God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Notice the movement there, the three stages. He says, we were made alive. Our pulse returns. We were raised. We were put on our feet. And he says, we're seated So we're victorious with God over sin and death. See, going back to our two pictures, um, I think this is the last time you have to look at them. Um, The two pictures, what's the difference between them? One of them I was dead. One of them I'm now alive. But it's more than that, isn't it? I'm alive, I'm raised, and I'm seated. Now, the obvious question is, how on earth can you say that, Rob? I mean, I'm just like everyone else. I'm a bit taller, admittedly, but I look and seem like everyone else. But notice how he puts things here in verse 5. He says, he made us alive with Christ. Verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus. Do you see the point here? It's not that we're saved in a vacuum. We're connected with Christ. We're in Christ. Two weeks ago, I spoke about my trip to Spain, and of course, I pointed out that I didn't take a trip to Spain. A jet took a trip to Spain, and I was in the jet. And so as the jet went up, I went up, and as the jet went down, I went down. 
And Paul, if this isn't too irreverent, describes what happens with the jets uh, in chapter 1, verse 19. Just look over the page with me at it. He says, verse 19, his incomparably great power for us who believe, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. And so Paul says, look at what's happened to Christ. God's taken him from the dead, he's raised him up, and he's seated him in the heavenly realms. And in chapter 2, it's like the same happens with us. He says, you were dead, you've been made alive, now you're seated in the heavenly realms. And so uh, you'll see on this diagram that it's not that we're kind of spectators on the resurrection, it's not that we're disconnected from that historical event. Rather, Jesus grabs his people with him as he defeats the grave. And so as he's made alive, you and me are made alive. See, here's the thing. You look at the Christian, and they just seem very ordinary, don't they? They look like everyone else. I mean, I don't want to be rude about you, but you just look like regular people in front of me. But Paul is saying, look, if you could take back the curtain and see the heavenly reality, if you could connect a spiritual spiritual ECG machine, you would see that you're alive, you're seated with God. I wonder if you've seen the program Secret Millionaire. Um, The idea is that uh, a millionaire goes and um, changes their clothes, they take off the nice suit and that sort of thing, and they go and live with a a poor community for a while. And it's quite funny watching it because obviously they're very rich, the people they're with haven't got much, and there's all sorts of cultural faux pas and that sort of thing. See, the thing is, they look the same as the people around them, but you as a viewer can have a lot of fun because you know that actually, secretly, they're a millionaire. And there's a great moment at the end of the episode where they reveal that uh, to the people and then uh, share some of their bank account with them. And it seems similar here. See, our conversion in the Lord Jesus means that we possess life, that we've been made alive. It might not seem like that on the surface, It may seem like we're like everyone else, but we're alive, we're raised, we're seated. So often we focus in on our sin, don't we? And we think to ourselves, how much has really changed? Or we look at our current circumstances, perhaps our job prospects or perhaps our health, and we think to ourselves, God feels very distant at this time. Or we just don't feel very alive in ourselves. Perhaps the years are catching up with us, and perhaps we don't have the energy we once did. But the great news is the moment we're in Christ Jesus, we're alive, we're raised, we're seated. That's the how, but notice the what of the solution. He speaks about life. See, notice here, the the, the solution to this big problem is the fact that we're made alive. And it has to be that solution, doesn't it? Because no amount of medical expertise can solve the problem of death. See, when someone's dead, there is only one solution, and that is a miracle. And the great point is that Jesus has, uh, God in Jesus has done that miracle. And as that miracle took place, we are raised with him. See, no, that's so different, isn't it, to the, the kind of ideas we hear around us, the world religions and the, the philosophies. See, world religions, they say there's a problem, and you need to work at it. You need to change. Yes, you have help, but you need to act. Only Christianity says you're dead, you're hopeless, but God has done everything. 
Now, perhaps we hear that this morning, we think, well, that's pretty arrogant for us to say, or perhaps some of us, even Christians, think that just seems a little bit extreme to say that. But there's a whole important reason here that Paul says for this change, and I want us to finish uh, by looking at it. See, Paul doesn't just tell us what happens, but he tells us why it happens. And it comes in this repeated word, grace. See, 2 verse 5, he says, he made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And verse 7, in order in the coming ages, he may show the incomparable riches of his grace. And verse 8, it is by grace you've been saved. So you get the point. Paul is saying that this is all through grace. The reason I've been made alive, the, the difference between those two pictures comes through grace. Now, what does grace mean? Well, perhaps, uh, depending on our age, we think of the Stormzy song, or we think of God's riches at Christ's expense. But there's a simple definition of grace, and it comes in verse 8. He says it is a gift of God. See, the thing about a gift is that it's given when it's not deserved. Uh, each month, I, give, um, I get my pay packet from the Church of England, and I've never once phoned up my bishop and said to him, thank you so much for your generosity. It's so kind of you to give me uh, the money each month. Now, why not? Well, it's because I've earned it. It's because I deserve it. I mean, you may question that, but I've done the hours. <laughs> but then last week, it was my birthday, and I was bought this beautiful guitar, I didn't expect it. I didn't do any hours towards it. And so I thanked the people that gave it to me. I was moved by it. And so it is with salvation. It's not something we deserve. Not something we earn. It's by grace. It's a complete gift. As well as telling us what it is, Paul tells us the kind of opposite as well, the kind of negative, what it isn't. He says, verse 9, it is not by works. It is not by my efforts. See, many assume, and I think this is the biggest misunderstanding about Christianity today. I, I genuinely believe that many people in our culture have not rejected Christianity. They've rejected a kind of morph of Christianity, which is that God will love you if you work hard, if you do something for Him, if you become more religious, if you read your Bible, if you pray, if you go to church, then God will be pleased and He will love you. But Paul says the opposite, doesn't he, verse 9? Not by works. It's not that we bring anything to the party. Maybe we say to ourselves, well, what about the faith bit? Don't we do that? I mean, don't we have to trust? But even that, verse 8, he says, is not from ourselves. So it's not that God does the grace bit and we do the faith bit. It's not that God does 50% and then we meet him halfway with our 50%. It's not that God even does 99% and we do 1%. It's God does 100% and we do nothing. And it has to be that, doesn't it? Because the problem is that we're dead. See, sometimes you hear this idea in churches that grace is a bit like a medicine, and we kind of, um, God's done everything, he's provided the medicine, but we have to go to the cabinet and take it out and take it. Or sometimes you hear the idea in um, more Roman Catholic theology that our works kind of co-opt with God's grace, and we kind of have to do a bit and uh, God does a bit, and they kind of work in tandem. But the thing is, the moment we say that, we open the door for salvation by works. And Paul says it is not by works. 
Now, why is it so important we get that this morning? Well, Paul, notice what he says in verse 9. It is not by works so that no one can boast. Now, when I was looking at it, I thought, why does he need to say that? Why can't he just say it's not by works, it's by grace? He doesn't put that, does he? He says, so no one can boast. And I think that's because Paul knows the human heart. He knows that if there was a tiny bit that I'm contributing, I've got something to boast in. See, the whole point here is that it's God and him. I can't take any pride in my abilities. See, in fact, I think it robs God of his glory, and God does not share his glory with anyone else. See, verse 7, he says, in him, uh, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness in Christ Jesus. It's a remarkable verse that God wants to show his church off to the universe by showing his grace. And the moment we say we've done some of it is the moment we take that um, showing off away from him. Now, we mustn't misunderstand this. We mustn't think works are bad and it's wrong to do good things. Verse 10 tells us that we're created for good works. But even those works are only possible because of God's grace. He's prepared them in advance. See, for a long time, I just didn't get this about the Christian faith. See, I don't know if anyone else has found this, but I was kind of brought up on the doctrine of the self-made man that if I work hard at my exams, if I go out and stand on my own two feet, then I will be rewarded. And so I was constantly called up in this cycle of working hard, working hard, working hard, with this idea that I will someday be rewarded. And so when I came to Christianity, I assumed that this would be saying the same, that Jesus was a kind of self-made man. And by following Jesus, then I will be rewarded uh, like he was. But the trouble is, as long as I went on thinking that... I never loved God, really. See, God was only giving me my due because I'd worked hard. And it was only after his mercy, only after a time where I stuffed up in many ways, that I realized I'd been approaching it all wrong. The problem was far deeper, that I was dead, and I needed to be made alive. And in November 2003, God worked his grace in me, and I understood that for the first time. See, again, it's so different, isn't it, to the religion we hear around us or the ideas of God that we often have. See, religion gives us a reason to boast. And that's why religion and pride go hand in hand so often, and we hate it. But this takes away any boast because it's by grace and grace alone. As we close, Paul clearly wants the Ephesians to know, doesn't he, that there's nothing ordinary about becoming a Christian. Yes, we look at the change, and it doesn't seem massively remarkable on the outside, but look at the heavenly reality, and we see God's power towards us. And so we don't need to be tempted to things that seem powerful in this age, powerful churches or powerful demonstrations of uh, faith. And we don't need to look to our own works as kind of demonstrations that we're doing something to God. See, when we do that, we take the power away from God and we put it elsewhere. See, it is by grace, and that grace means we're secure. Now, how does this change us as a church? First of all, I think this has to be our foundation here at St. Mary's, isn't it? See, Paul's going to go on to show us 
that there is no sense of superiority as a church. The church is not a museum for saints. It is a hospital for sinners. There's no looking down at our culture. At our, um, there's no um, sense in which we're better than everyone else. It is only because God is merciful and we want to share his mercy. Secondly, we need to keep coming back to this daily, I think. See, all of us have our bad days and our good days. And you know how it is? Your relationship with God can so often feel that, uh, follow that flow of good days and bad days. If we stuff up, we feel God's deserted us. If we do well, we feel that God's pleased with us. But whatever we experience, it is by grace and grace alone. See, none of us graduate from the University of Grace. And thirdly, I think we have to rejoice, don't we? See, we have a God who does not drive us away, but he welcomes us with open arms. Verse 4, he says, He is God who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us. And perhaps for the first time, we've heard that. We've imagined God to be a God who only is pleased with us when we do something for him. But God is showing us that he's done everything for us, and he calls all of us, no matter where we're from, to not pretend that we're better than we are, to recognize our spiritual bankruptcy, and to taste his gift of grace. Let's pray. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. We thank you, our gracious Heavenly Father, for this gift of grace towards us. We praise you that even when we were dead in our sins and transgressions, the Lord Jesus came, died, was risen, and seated. And so we pray, our Father, that you would keep our eyes firmly fixed on him and what he has done for us. And we ask that you would never let us leave um, your grace and never help, help us, Father, to never give in to the temptation of looking elsewhere. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.